If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about MyLifeInABook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. 
Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. It's no secret that DNA has impacted our world greatly. From who's the father segments on Maury, studying our own family tree and understanding our food sensitivities, to the expectation and evidence we have in court while sitting on a jury, DNA has been intertwined into our culture. The benefits have been vast. One that comes to mind right away is the exoneration of inmates who are convicted of crimes. The Innocence Project estimates that up to 10% of inmates are actually innocent of the crimes they were convicted for. As of April of this year, 375 people have been cleared of charges in the U.S. thanks to DNA testing. 21 of those people were sitting on death row waiting for their lives to end. Imagine how many we were too late for. Advances in DNA analysis are integral, not only for clearing people's names, but getting to the right perpetrator sooner and protecting the public. And no one recognizes that better than detectives. DNA has changed the game. It's like liquid gold. It also happens to be the common thread throughout the new true crime book, In My DNA, My Career Investigating Your Worst Nightmare, authored by Lindsay Wade, a former Tacoma, Washington detective. I mentioned the book in my latest episode regarding the abduction and murder of 12-year-old Zena Linick. If you listen to that episode, you know that I was very excited to get the chance to sit down with Lindsay for an interview and ask her some of the questions that came through my mind as I read her book. Before we jump into that interview, I have one more case she featured in her book that I'd like to share with you. Way back when, in 1997, I spent a year living in Gig Harbor, Washington with my dad. The area is breathtaking. Let's attempt to do it justice. Gig Harbor is located on the Kitsap Peninsula. Other cities in the area include Bremerton, Bainbridge Island, Port Orchard, and many other cities. They all give you the same small-town charm with their picturesque waterfront views and maritime vibe. Scattered throughout the area are ferries and bridges as it's part of an intricate water system. The cities on the peninsula have a very quiet and isolated feel thanks to the rolling hills and lush forests surrounding it but it's only minutes away from larger metropolitan areas. In fact, Bremerton sits directly across the waterway from Seattle, and you can take one of two ferries to get to downtown Seattle. Depending on which one you take, you could get there in anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. Today's case is focused in Bremerton, and it starts in a mobile home park called Steel Creek. I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you hear the term trailer park or mobile home park, likely a stereotype if you haven't lived near one or spent time in one, but they're very family and budget friendly. Steel Park boasts a playground, a clubhouse, basketball court, a 24-hour gym. It's common to see kids and pets running around and enjoying the freedom of a small community, as well as senior citizens basking in their quiet, cost-effective retirement. One of the families that called the Steel Creek Mobile Home Park home were the Wrights. The family consisted of parents James and Denise and six children, three of which lived at home. Six-year-old Janice Wright was the youngest. Janice was known around the neighborhood as a happy child, always displaying a huge smile and following it up with a sassy personality. 
She was free with her kindness and friendship, always welcoming new kids into the park and becoming their first friend. Everyone knew her because she liked to go around the neighborhood on her own and talk to anyone who listened. In Lindsay's book, she describes her as looking like Dora the Explorer, which is very accurate with her brown bob and bangs. Janice was biracial. Her father, James, is white, and her mother, Denise, is part of the Nooksack Indian tribe. Janice inherited her mom's looks with dark features and big brown eyes. She is, to put it plainly, very adorable. Every day during the summer of 2014, Janice would be seen roaming around the neighborhood until one day she was gone. News of her disappearance swept through the area on August 3, 2014, but she had been gone for hours before anyone really knew how serious the situation was. On August 3, Janice's sister called police to report her as missing around 10 p.m. Police quickly learned from her that she had been gone for 24 hours. Apparently, the last time anyone saw six-year-old Janice was the night of August 2nd, just after 10 p.m., when she went to bed. As you can imagine, the parents became the initial focus of the investigation for a number of reasons. Firstly, there was a significant delay in reporting their daughter as missing. Now, when looking at abductions or runaways who disappear at night, it's common to not notice them as missing until the next morning. But she wasn't reported missing until the next night. That's a red flag. Definitely. When police spoke with her parents, there wasn't much concern. This was explained by the fact that Janice was, quote, free range and often out on her own. It was not uncommon for her to be out in the neighborhood all day. So her parents thought she was just up to her usual and would come home later that night. When she didn't, that's when the call was made. There was no evidence of an abduction when the investigation started. So it's reasonable to consider that the child wandered off, ran away, or something happened with the parents. Whatever the case a massive search started immediately. The search included local police, members of the Tacoma Police Child Abduction Response Team, also known as CART, the FBI, canine units, specialty searchers like Kathy Decker, who is referred to as Manhunter, volunteers, family, friends, and neighbors. By Monday the 4th, the search turned up evidence that changed everything. It was clear they weren't looking for a missing child who wandered off. Something nefarious had happened. While searchers focused on the forested surrounding areas of the park, they discovered a pair of children's underwear and black shorts. The underwear was stained with blood. Photos of the clothing were presented to Denise Wright, and she confirmed that the underwear did in fact belong to Janice. Unlike a lot of the cases we cover, Janice's case really highlighted some fabulous police work. And one of the groups that really stood out was the lab that processed the evidence. In under two days, the lab was able to turn around DNA results from the children's underwear discovered in the park. With the results, police were able to eliminate Janice's parents as suspects. The blood found in the underwear confirmed that it belonged to someone who was the offspring of James and Denise Wright. Janice. Blood was not the only biological matter in the underwear. Semen was found, and when it was processed, it was determined that it did not match Janice's father or other family members. But unfortunately, there were no matches in the state or national DNA databases. While the DNA was being processed, police urged the neighborhood to help, and the biggest way that they could help was for all male residents to submit their DNA for comparison, which means 
they went door to door collecting DNA. Now, throughout this process, several people floated to the top of the list of folks to keep tabs on, and not necessarily because of their DNA, just because they were suspicious. There was the neighbor who left in a U-Haul the same day that Janice went missing. Can't be doing that. Nope. Looks bad. Of course, anyone with a record in sexual deviancy. And shockingly or surprisingly, a 17-year-old neighbor who had been acting strangely. FBI agents Matt Yeager and Mike Baldino were part of the door-to-door canvas, and they approached one of the neighbor's homes to ask for DNA submissions. The parents said that their teenage son, a guy named Gabriel Gaeta, wouldn't be able to submit just then. In fact, he was really struggling with the disappearance of Janice. While this isn't necessarily a big red flag, maybe orange, the agents noted Gabriel as, quote, someone to keep an eye on. Oh, how large was the team that was collecting all the DNA? I'm not quite sure of that. I These are the only two that were mentioned by name, but I have to imagine... FBI was leading this portion, so it could have been more than two. It could have just been them. But it's a pretty big mobile park, so maybe there was more. Gabriel Gaeta knew the rights. He was friends with Janice's older brother. He even earned extra money chopping firewood for James Wright. So yes, a family friend could be very startled by the possible abduction of a child they were close to. His reaction, however, was concerning. Gabriel had been showing signs of severe depression, and his family said he would often shut down during bad episodes. At the time of Janice's disappearance, when police wanted to interview him as they had everyone else in the neighborhood, he was unable to because he wouldn't leave his bedroom. His mother said he was spending most of his time curled up in the fetal position in bed, completely devastated. On Thursday, August 7th, just before 11 a.m., the discovery no one wanted to make was made. Janice's body was found roughly 20 feet from where the clothing had been found. She had been left in a bog, partially submerged in muddy water. She had then been covered with a wood pallet to obscure her from view. Her body was sent for an autopsy, which confirmed that she had been raped. She had also been beaten and strangled to death. Semen was found on her body, and it matched the semen in her underwear. Did they think that the body had been there the whole time? Yes, it was. So that was a little surprising because they had the Manhunter and the canine team. But, I mean, she was submerged in mud, which I assume might have a, could block scent to Mm. an extent. But she was was totally covered, and there was a lot of brush, so it was really hard to see. That is surprising, though, you know, because you think, oh, a wood pellet looks pretty... Out of place. Out of place. But then again, I don't know the area. Maybe there was a lot of junk around there. The same day she was found, the FBI was able to obtain a DNA sample from Gabriel Gaeta. And thanks to the expediency of the testing, it was confirmed to be a match with the sample taken from her body and clothing. Police executed a search warrant on Gaeta's home, and his room turned up additional evidence in the form of mud and blood-stained clothing and a towel. By August 9th, Gabriel Zebediah Gaeta was arrested for Janice's rape and murder. At his first appearance in court, it was announced that he would be held on $1 million bail and remanded to a juvenile detention center until his birthday the following December. Then he would be moved to the county jail. About a year later, a year after that, he was officially charged with first-degree murder and first-degree rape. He was going to be charged as an adult. But due to the fact that he committed the crimes as a juvenile, the death penalty was completely off the table. 
a lot of stuff happened that interrupted the court proceedings in this case. First, there were legal issues and sentencing around juveniles. There were a few cases at the time that came up that challenged giving true life sentences for people who committed violent crimes, uh, you know, as children, obviously. Right, right. Now, this impacted the case. Basically, it was determined, it became law that you have to give these people the option for a parole at some point. So the absolute maximum sentence they can get is life with parole. The other thing that impacted this case was the fact that Gaeta's mental health and competency was in question. His defense team argued that he wasn't competent as he wouldn't speak to them for long periods of time. And while in juvie, he would often refuse to eat and had to go to the hospital multiple times. This resulted in the judge ordering him to stay in the Western State Hospital for what they call competency restoration. During that stay, he was diagnosed as having major depressive disorder. There were also quite a few incidents. He was forced to take medication because he had very violent behavior against staff members. And he's not small. In fact, he was a bit of a wrestling star in high school. He placed second in the state championship in the 182-pound division. So I can only imagine he got bigger, Mm -hmm. stronger, and more dangerous at that point. He was also constantly monitored because he had suicidal ideation. After he was forced to take his meds, he was eventually deemed competent for trial. And this ended up being in August of 2017, three years after his arrest. Wow. On February 16th, 2018, he pleaded guilty to aggravated first degree murder and first degree rape. And that following June, he was officially sentenced to 40 years to life in prison with an option for parole after serving 25 years. He's now serving his time in the Monroe Correctional Complex, which is just northeast of Seattle. So we talk a lot about our feelings on juvenile perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Lindsay and I will talk about later in the show. Uh, But I struggle because we see a lot of cases in Canada where people are rehabilitated. But this type of crime, I don't think... It's possible, but he does. Have, yeah. He has a lot of mental health issues. So maybe on the right medication, someone could. Yeah. And I'm curious, too. It's like if he was a wrestling star, but then it wasn't till he was older that he was showing these behaviors that are, you know, being violent towards people outside of, you know, a sports setting. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it makes you wonder, like, were there signs there for a long time that no. he was aggressive and violent? No. So people who knew him said he was very easygoing, sweet. The only time he ever had any kind of aggression was when he was wrestling, which, you know, that's pretty normal. So what happened in that last few years of his life or not his life, but his right, teenage right. years. Now, there there were things that came up in court about being abused and bullied and mistreated by, I think, his father. Uh, but the judge actually said there was no evidence to suggest that that had any impact on uh. his actions. Um, she basically was like, absolutely not. That's not an argument. Um, but we know that that can happen. Yeah, and that mental health issues can really rear their ugly heads once you're like out of puberty and, mm-hmm. and kind of in your late teens, early 20s. Uh, Again, it's that tricky spot of allowing the mental health issues to have their place to explain behaviors, but also not letting them take over to become excuses. Yeah. And if he can be believed when he uh, pleaded guilty, Mm -hmm. he apologized the family for what he had done. Um, And it does. It seemed um, real. Yeah. But he said, 
I don't know why I did this. So if that can be and believed, that's scary. that's scary. Yeah, there's something in his head that he has urges and he doesn't know where they stem from. Um, you know, because maybe he could have molested her and let her live. Like what, what right. went A to Z there, you know? Mm-hmm. It's very scary. So he will be eligible for parole, I think, in his he'll be in his 50s or maybe younger. I mean, if t- 25 years. I have a feeling right. he won't be let out at 25 years. But so there's a chance... You know, he's going to be a very healthy person out in the world and people will obviously want to monitor. Hopefully, hopefully medication works. Yeah. As I mentioned, I was able to interview Lindsay Wade, who was a Tacoma detective and worked as an assistant coordinator for the Tacoma Police Child Abduction Team. She worked on Janice's case and she worked on a few other cases we've done other episodes about. I came up with a list of questions for her and I think our listeners will want to hear what she has to say. With us today is former Washington detective turned author and podcaster, Lindsay Wade. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Why don't we jump right in and why don't you tell us about yourself and a little bit about your career? Sure. Well, I am a Washington state native and I was a police officer and a, and a detective with the Tacoma Washington Police Department for 21 years. So um I got hired at the the ripe old age of 21 (laughs) and uh, started my career as a patrol officer and spent about six, I guess, six years as a patrol officer. And then I got promoted to detective and I spent the majority of my my career with the police department as a detective, primarily investigating sex crimes, uh, missing persons, child abuse cases, homicide cases cold cases, and pretty much anything having to do with DNA. (laughs) The gamut there. Yeah. Um, And then I decided to retire early in 2018 and took a job with the attorney general's office to work on a statewide project um, called the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. And so that was uh, an effort in our state to clear the backlog of untested rape kits. And um, so I worked at the attorney general's office for uh, about three and a half years total. Um, and then now I work for a nonprofit. So um, I'm still kind of, I guess I would say I'm um, more in a, a consulting role, um, kind of like a law enforcement subject matter expert, but not directly working on cases any longer. So you have a new book that just launched called In My DNA, My Career Investigating Your Worst Nightmare. And I think the title kind of alludes to what the book is about, but why don't you give us a little bit of a summary? Oh, yeah. So the book is um, kind of a labor of love for me. It took about five years to finally get it out there. And it, it really is a collection of cases that I investigated over my career. And these were cases that... Um, you know, meant something to me or, you know, had an impact on me for, you know, a variety of reasons. And um, so I, I chose to tell those stories um, in the book. And then there's there's a kind of a central case that is sort of like the thread throughout the book that started in my childhood and, and ends at the conclusion of the story. Definitely. Uh, and I will talk about that. Um, so I pre-ordered the book. I know I was 
introduced you, I think via Twitter, I had talked to a detective, um, when I was doing the Kimberly Kersey case and she mentioned you, and then I found you on Twitter and we kind of interacted a little bit and you said you were writing a book. So I, I, it's been a while. I've been so excited. I read it in two sittings and I was really engrossed in it. And honestly, my only complaint is that it could have been longer because I didn't want to put it down <laughs> and I um, hope you'll go on to write more books. Cause I think it's such <laughs> a great perspective. Thank you so much. If it, you tackle some major stuff, um, you, the wins and cases, the seriousness of the crimes, the heartache in doing that type of work, and you even managed to sprinkle humor throughout. So I felt like I could connect to you. Um, but also woven throughout the book was your perspective on what it's like to be not only a woman in law enforcement, but a woman of color in law enforcement. And I wonder if you could just share a little bit about your experience and how you, how you navigated that. Well, that's kind of a different, it is a difficult question to ask because um, I'm, I kind of have a one track mind. And so, you know, I'm very goal oriented. And so when I just decide that I want to do something or I kind of have my mindset on something, um, I, that's what I focus on. And I don't really let a lot the other things that are going on sort of um, affect me too much. So, mm -hmm. you know, with law enforcement, I mean, I kind of knew that I was an underdog from the get go, right? Like, I'm, I, I think when I got hired, I was like, I don't know, 115 pounds soaking wet with all my gear on and, you know, really young and a woman and, um, you know, biracial. And so, I mean, I definitely was very different um, than most of the people, most of my peers um, a lot for, you know, younger, a woman, um, you know, different racial makeup. But, you know, I really didn't pay too much attention to that stuff, especially early on in my career. I really just tried to focus on doing a good job and learning my job and trying to do the best that I could. And I knew that I wanted to be a detective. And so that was always like my drive just to, you know, to get there. Um, and of course, you know, there were things that would happen along the way. And I talked about a few examples of things in the book. Um, but I don't know. I just, I try not to get too bogged down or um, entangled in, you know, what could have been or like, you know, what I deserved or you know that kind of thing because the reality like at, at the end of the day I just wanted to be the best I could be at my job and I kind of knew that at, at some point I would be accepted and I would be respected based on my work not necessarily by you know what I look like right that was kind of my my attitude and you know how I tried to carry myself and um, I think that held true for the most part so that was kind of my, my way of navigating through that world. Yeah. Keep focused. I like it. I mean, it's, uh, I, do you feel like you were aware of how people may have treated you differently or did you just completely ignore it and, and go for the goal? Oh, I was definitely aware of it. Um, and, you know, uh, I would say it was more being a woman than anything else. Um, you know, there's always the boys club. And, um, you know, law enforcement is primarily made up of men anyway, as are a lot of professions. And so, you know, you're very aware of that, that you're not one of the boys. You're not part of that, you know, the boys club, so to speak. And that's, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, I've known this about you from previous internet stalking, and you talk about it in your book that one of the big inspirations for working in law enforcement was the book, The Stranger Beside Me by Ann Rule, which uh, is about the infamous serial killer, Ted Bundy. Is that really when you knew what you wanted to do with your career? Oh, yes. A hundred percent. I was so obsessed with that book. And uh, it's funny because I even forgot this, but one of my best friends from junior high on her mom just read my book and she sent me a message and said, Oh, I remember you talking about Ted Bundy in our living room, you know, back in high school. I'm like, gosh, was I that bad? But I mean, apparently I was a true crime nerd and totally obsessed back in the eighties, you know, before it was a thing. So, but uh, yeah, I was completely hooked after reading that book. Uh, I am a big fan of her writing in general, but that was, that's a standout book for sure. Um, No, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because I think our listeners will really enjoy your book. But let's just say you opened it with a bang and retold this experience from your childhood. That was pretty scary. Never have the words. I'm going to go make some eggs been more frightening to me. Do you think that experience, you know, helped to carve out your career path as well? Certainly, um, if you had asked me that five or, you know, five years ago, I would have said no. I don't think consciously it did, but I probably subconsciously for sure. You know, I didn't, I didn't walk away from that thinking, okay, now I want to, yeah. Like I can clearly remember thinking that about reading after reading the book, but you know, with that experience when I was younger, not so much. Um, but looking back on it, I honestly can't imagine how it wouldn't have some kind of an impact on that interest at least, you know, in my mind. Yeah. Curiosity. My, I, my mom had a stalker when I was a kid and I remember just being like obsessed with the idea of it and I wanted mm-hmm. to know more. So maybe, and here I am yeah. now <laughs> true crime podcasting. So you never know. We've referenced Jennifer Bastian and Michelle Welsh in multiple episodes. This was perhaps the most impactful case in Lindsay's life and career. Here's a quick summary of the case. On March 26, 1986, 12-year-old Michelle Welsh disappeared after using the restroom while playing in Puget Park with her sisters. Her body was discovered later that day in a gulch near the park. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. Roughly four months later, 13-year-old Jennifer Bastian disappeared while riding her bike through Point Defiance Park. Two weeks later, her body was found in a wooded area. She, too, had been raped and murdered. For many years, the cases were thought to be linked. After following hundreds of leads, the case went cold until it was taken on by the Tacoma cold case team and reinvigorated thanks to advances in DNA analysis. In 2018, nearly three decades after the crimes, genetic genealogy played a crucial role in catching their killer, or I should say killers. The DNA evidence in Jennifer's case pointed to a man named Robert Washburn, a former Tacoma resident who had relocated to Illinois. He was arrested in 2020, pleaded guilty, and was sentenced to 27 years in prison. Mere months after narrowing down who Jennifer's killer was, the DNA from Michelle's case led police to a man named Gary Hartman. In 2022, he was sentenced to 26 and a half years in prison. You mentioned in other interviews that another lasting memory from your childhood was in 1986 when Jennifer Bastian and Michelle Welsh went missing a few months apart and were both found murdered. How old were you and what do you remember from that when it happened? So that was something that was really impactful 
for me and and for a lot of people in my community. Uh, I was 11 when um, Jennifer was killed. So I would have been 10 when Michelle was killed. And they were killed about four and a half months apart from each other. And it was just really scary. It was um, the first time that I was aware of, of something so horrific happening, and especially in my own town. And, you know, at a place that I was very familiar with, because, you know, Point Defiance was certainly a place that everybody knew about, and, and most people had been to and probably visited on, a, you know, at least an annual basis, if not more. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was frightening. And to think that these girls were out riding their bikes, and, you know, just hanging out at a park and um, in broad daylight in the middle of the, you know, middle of the day, and uh, one of them was on spring break and the other one was summer break. It, you know, it was just terrifying to think that that could happen. And, and then I know I really identified with the fact that, wow, that, you know, I mean, if that could happen to these little girls, that could happen to me. It could happen to one of my friends. It's, um, you know, it really changed how everybody that I knew um, viewed the world, to be quite honest. And it really changed the community. It really impacted the community. There was a lot of fear. Um, there was fear that there was a serial killer on the loose. And you got to remember, this was 1986. The Green River Killer was was going strong and still unidentified. Um, you know, and he, he was operating one county north of us in King County. There, there was just a lot of unknowns and a, and a lot of speculation and just a lot of, of general fear. So parents you know, sort of changed the way they parented their kids. You know, there there were, there was, I think a lot of sort of free range parenting prior to this happening. And that really was curtailed. Um, you know, kids were encouraged or told, you know, to, you know, use the buddy system and, you know, you're not going to walk someplace by yourself. You're not going to go to the park by yourself. You're not going to, you know, do the things that you ordinarily would have done because there's some bad man out there. So fast forward quite a few years and you become a detective and I believe you joined the Tacoma cold case unit in 2013. Is that correct? Um, I was in the homicide unit at that time and I started working on cold cases just as a collateral duty in, yeah, probably, well, it probably would have been around 2009 when, or I guess, see, I was on maternity leave until the end of 09. So 2010. It's probably when I started working on cold cases, kind of as a, an extra duty in my spare time. So in your spare time. Yeah. Yeah. So much spare time. Yeah. So one of those cases that you ended up working on was Jennifer Bastian and Michelle Welsh. And going from like a childhood story of warning to an actual case you want to solve, what was going through your head? How are you feeling? Well, you know, with Jennifer's case and Michelle's, I actually had kind of seen some things from the case file earlier on, um, maybe, I don't know, a, a year or two into being a detective. Uh, one of the, the detectives who was working on the case at the time had actually shown me uh, the photos, the, the crime scene photos from both cases and kind of told me what he was doing as far as reevaluating evidence and everything. And, you know, this was would have been like the early 2000s. Uh, and so that really got my attention because I had heard about the cases, of course, but, you know, all I knew was like these pictures of these two girls, like their school pictures, right. From TV. Right. And now I'm seeing what actually happened to them and um, kind of seeing the reality of it. And um, so that was really striking. And 
I mean, I hoped, you know, at that point I was not in a position to be able to be a part of their cases. But um, once I got the opportunity to um, participate in the investigation and I was, I was all in and, um, you know, Jennifer and Michelle's cases really were the inspiration for the creation of our cold case unit uh, with the police department. I mean, we had about 250 unsolved homicides um, when the unit was first created and uh, their cases were definitely at the top of the list. Not that any case is more important than another case to solve, but, um, you know, it just seemed like they should have been solved, especially because there was DNA. And so, you know, it was sort of like this, this feeling like it's just a matter of time, Um, you know, they're going to be solved. It it was, I don't think anybody ever really thought like they'll never, you know, they're going to be cold forever. Yeah. And so at some point after you joined, there was a major break in the case. And I remember reading somewhere that it was over 2000 names were in their case files. And we covered a few of those suspects in our episode called Point Defiance. But after years of assuming the same perpetrator killed both girls, you received DNA results that said definitively that the perpetrator DNA in each case didn't match, which meant different people. What was that like in the unit? How did people react to that information? It was shocking. We actually kept it pretty under wraps initially. And because I think we got those results in, I don't even remember now. It's been so long, but (laughs) prior to the 30 year anniversary, I know we got the results and, you know, it was, it was shocking, but it was also kind of exciting because now we had this new avenue of investigation to pursue. And we had a lot of suspects that had been eliminated previously because they were not available for one of the crimes, you know, maybe mm. jail or prison, or they were dead by the time, you know, the second murder happened or something. And so there were all these people that now needed a fresh look. And um, so it really prompted us to kind of go back through and come through the files and, and take a, a second look at people and not completely start over. But, you know, one of the things that I ended up doing when I took over the case in 2015 was just to reorganize it completely and to create a digital database that I could capture all of the male names that appeared in the case file. Because these are this, you know, this is a case from 1986. Most of the reports were either handwritten police reports or they were created on a typewriter. And so there was no way to catalog or index uh, suspects or or anybody or have a good sense of who we already had DNA from. And so I spent months um, just going through all the binders and pulling out every single male name and entering them into a database and, and giving an explanation as to why they were in the case file and where I could find their report. Um, so it took a lot of time to do this. But once I got done, I had about 2,300 Wow. Um, between the two cases. And then I was able to basically prioritize them and, you know, determine if we had already eliminated a suspect with either because their DNA was already in the database in CODIS, or if we had collected their DNA as a result of our investigation. And after entering all those names, we only had about 350 people that were eliminated from DNA. And that was, by the way, the only way that I was going to eliminate anybody was through DNA. I'm not a big fan of alibis. Um, and things that could be subjective. So I was like, if you know, if we don't have your DNA, then you're not eliminated, basically. Yeah. <laughs> 
So you went on to consult with Colleen Fitzpatrick, an expert in genetic genealogy, to narrow down the search for a suspect. This is a technique we've talked about in a lot of our episodes. And using this process, you came across the surname Washburn as a potential link to the perpetrator, which led everyone to Robert Washburn, who happened to have called in a tip in Michelle's case and ultimately became the prime suspect in Jennifer Bastian's case. We have to discuss this because I'm wondering as I'm reading your book and as I was doing the research on that, was there ever an inkling that that one of the tipsters may have been involved? No. Really? No. Wow. I mean, if you saw the list of suspects in these cases and you read their criminal histories, you would be floored. Um, I mean, I would literally sit at my desk and I would read a name uh, who was listed on a tip sheet or somebody that was interviewed as a potential suspect. And then I would run up their criminal history and I'd be just flabbergasted by how much criminal history they had and all kinds of horrendous things that they had done. And then I'd read the next one and they were even worse. And so it was just kind of like, um, you know, based on training and experience in other cases and studies, you know, we were looking for somebody that had a history of this documented history of some kind of sexual deviance. Right. And so that's kind of, you know, that's really how we prioritized suspects was, you know, does this person, do they have a connection to the area? Um, Do they have a connection to one of the parks? Do they have, have they, you know, either been arrested or convicted or listed as a suspect in a case where there was some kind of, you know, sexual deviance involved? Um, Attempted abductions, child lorings, the indecent exposure. Like, I mean, I pulled so many old cases out of archives just looking for connections um, to other cases. And, you know, when I found Colleen, um, you know, she was, she had just solved a case for the Phoenix Police Department, um, the Canal Murders case that uh, I think actually the guy was just sentenced here on that case. But Phoenix PD was up in Washington following up on that case. And that's how I learned about Colleen and what she was doing with the genealogy. And so, you know, with Washburn, she, she not only provided me with Washburn as a potential surname, but she provided me with two other names as well. Um, and so, and one of them was Smith. So oh, that was oh. super helpful. Um, but, you know, Washburn was a name that was in the case file already because he had, like you said, he had called in a tip on Michelle's case and he had called in that tip before Jennifer was even killed. So when I read the tip, you know, he's, he was listed as basically a, an other in a report. So that's really not even a, I mean, technically like a witness, he, um, you know, just saw a sketch on the news and called the tip line and said that he saw somebody at Point Defiance Park who matched the description and, um, you know, basically said he jogged there. And if he saw the guy again, he would, you know, get the license plate. And that was that. Um, There really wasn't anything of interest. And, you know, when I ran his name, you know, he had a couple of misdemeanor arrests from the previous year nothing of interest for me. Um, but I did include him on my list of people to collect DNA from because he did have the same last name as the surname given to me by Dr. Fitzpatrick um, associated with the DNA. So that's really the only reason that he was on the list. I mean, had had I not had the name lead, 
I would not have included him. There were wow. so other people that were way, looked way better on paper as suspects than him. Thank goodness you did though. Who, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those cases like reading along, it's just like, whoa, this is mind blowing. And it's amazing that both of the cases are solved. People are being punished for it. It was rewarding to see. So I can only imagine what that's like for someone involved. Um, was that hard for you to retire around the same time? Did you second guess your decision to retire or was it nice to kind of close that chapter along with their cases? Oh, it was terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I retired 25 days before the match came in on Jennifer's case. And then Michelle's came like a month after that. So it was terrible. Um, I mean, I was happy. Don't get me wrong. I was so happy that the two cases were finally solved, but you know, I wanted to be there for it. And, you know, I wanted to be involved in the, in the process. So that was really tough. And I did second guess myself and, and there was, um, yeah, a lot of questioning whether I'd made the right decision. I mean, I know now I did make the right decision to retire, but at that moment, it was really hard to step away and, and to like not be in the middle of it when everything was coming together. Yeah. I mean, I think people, I mean, everyone still ties you to it. So it's kind of poetic to see this kind of beginning of your career to closing that portion of your career with this case. So, I mean, that's kind of beautiful, but I could imagine there's a lot of uh, back and forth in in someone's brain that goes on with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. latest episode, Too Many Missed Opportunities, I go into detail regarding the case of Zena Linick, a 12-year-old girl who was abducted in Tacoma. I definitely suggest listening to that episode if you haven't already, but here's a summary. On July 4, 2007, Zena had spent the evening watching fireworks outside at the end of the alley behind her home. She eventually went inside and was sent back outside to gather her siblings. Shortly after she did, her family heard her screams. Her father rushed out and caught a glimpse of an Asian man jumping into his gray van and driving away. Panic swept through the Linick family as they realized their beloved daughter had been abducted. The community rallied together, launching a massive search effort in hopes of finding her alive. As the investigation unfolded, authorities eventually identified their prime suspect, Terrapon Adhan, a registered sex offender with a very disturbing past. Adhan admitted to abducting Zena, sexually assaulting her, murdering her, and disposing of her body. Days after her disappearance, her body was discovered in a shallow grave in a nearby wooded area after Adhan told police where she could be found. Adhan was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Zena's case brought attention to the flaws in the justice system, raising questions about the monitoring and rehabilitation of sex offenders. It also prompted efforts to strengthen laws and improve safeguards to local abducted children and protect them from predators like Adhan. So in my most recent episode, Too Many Missed Opportunities, I covered the case of Zena Linick, which was featured in your book. Yep. The night Zena was abducted, you were called into work, I think you said around 10.30 p.m. Thinking back to that time in 2007, how did it typically work when there was a possible child abduction? Were there specific people that were called in or was it kind of like all hands on deck situation? 
Um, well, I had not been involved in a child abduction case. Um, the last one that we had prior to that was Tika Lewis, and I was a patrol officer at that time. So I was not involved, you know, from a detective standpoint on a missing child case until Zena. That night and pretty much in any situation like that, we had a, a call out rotation. So we had, you know, detectives from our homicide unit and from our sex crimes unit that were on call at 24 seven. And so um, I happened to be on call that night when, when this happened. So, you know, I was called to the scene along with several other detectives. And, you know, once we figured out that it, this was not, you know, a, uh, a missing kid that she was actually likely kidnapped. You know, we, we had to ramp things up pretty quickly and, you know, bring in more people. You know, the FBI was brought in fairly quickly. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard because with, with missing child cases, there usually is no, like, eyewitness to the abduction. You know, this one was pretty close because we had Zena's dad who heard the scream comes outside, doesn't see her, sees a van, thinks maybe it could be involved, but maybe not. I mean, you know, there's, a, but, you know, there's a lot of questions and confusion and speculation. Um, and so those first few hours, it's, it's very chaotic because you're still trying to figure out what you have. Um, you know, is this an abduction? Was it the van that dad saw or not? Um, is it the neighbor, you know, based on statements that we got? So, we, you know, you have to kind of work through all these different scenarios until you can, you know, be pretty certain of what you have. And I know that it, you know, for the public um, and for somebody probably who's not experienced one of these cases, it's pretty easy to sit back and say, um, well, like, of course she was kidnapped, but you really don't know that uh, to begin with. And most of the time that we do get called for missing kids, they're not kidnapped. You know, they're, they wandered to, off to their friend's house and, you know, stayed too late or fell asleep at somebody else's house where they're hiding or, you know, whatever. So for police, um, most, most police officers will never respond to a true child abduction case ever in their whole career. Yeah. You wrote that they're actually pretty rare. They're extremely rare obviously it's, it's an extremely critical kind of case and kind of investigation. Um, but unfortunately, you know, most law enforcement officers and most agencies really in general will not have the practice or expertise in handling one because they are so rare. I loved the part where you talked about narrowing down to two potential suspects, uh, by looking in other cases for a gray van with similar license plate numbers. And I just want to know more about that. What was the time frame that that was happening in? Is it hours? Was it days to, to figure out that information? You know, I don't remember what day of the investigation it was, but it was, you know, probably a couple of days in that I had pulled these, these old, you know, these cases out of our database. And, you know, these were, you know, because we had a tip line open. We had, we had, you know, people calling in with information that you're having to weed through, but um, you know, for me, I kind of knew from working sex crimes cases and having worked a couple of serial rape investigations previously that, you know, it's not uncommon to find other cases related um, somewhere, you know, other reported cases. And so that's kind of what I was looking for was, OK, if this person was successful in this abduction, 
were there some attempts, you know, prior to this um, or some, you know, some other cases that we could link to this person to maybe help us identify who the suspect was. And so that's really what I did was, you know, just dug into our, our um, report database and just started doing um, keyword searches and partial plate searches and, you know, looking for reports where there was a gray van listed or looking for um, reports where there was a partial license plate in the report, um, similar to the ones that uh, Zena's father had given us. And that's where I ended up coming up with the two uh, reports. And ultimately, you know, one of those reports turned out to be um, like a theft report that was the vehicle that, you know, turned out to be the same vehicle that, that took Zena and it had a, a full license plate in the report that was similar to the, the plate that Zena's dad had given. After obtaining that information, you know, it was assigned out for follow-up to um, a detective and an FBI agent. They tracked it down to uh, the ultimate suspect in the case who was um, a registered sex offender. And, you know, it was it was interesting because we had to go through many, many layers. I mean, the report, you know, on its face was the victim in, in the that theft report was listed as a white male. So I mean, yeah. I ignored it because well, he doesn't fit the description, but, you know, because of the plate and the fact that it was a gray van, it was kind of like, well, let's just at least eliminate it. And, you know, we turned out we couldn't eliminate it. Turned out it was registered to an Asian male who fit the description and, you know, ultimately was the suspect. Yeah. Another good call there for sure. I remember reading that too. And I'm like, oh my gosh, so, so easily someone could have glossed over that and just moved on. So after Terrapon Adhan went to prison for his crimes against Zena, you had the chance to watch an interview that the FBI conducted with him in 2008. And in this chapter of the book, you describe how um, he talks about his motive and what actually happened and that he claims he killed her accidentally, that he had put a zip tie around her mouth and he went to tighten it because she was making noise. And when he got to his home, she was already dead. And then he sexually assaulted her. And you already heard me ask this, but is there any evidence or information from her autopsy that could potentially corroborate that? Or is it just, and do you believe it? Do you have a gut feeling about him? You know, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, if you look at his words, his own words, and what he said during that interview, it makes me believe that he would have preferred to have her alive. Um, to do what he was planning on doing. And he made certain statements about, um, you know, wanting, uh, wanting to destroy a human and, you know, wanting, wanting somebody to basically feel the pain that he felt and and things like that. And, you know, that led me to believe that he really wanted to inflict pain, you know, torture on somebody that that was my interpretation. If that's true. And, you know, she, she, she's, deceased um, before he gets the opportunity to do those things, then he really wouldn't be able to carry out his plan. Um, So I don't know. I mean, you know, believe me, my partner and I discussed this many, many hours, um, you know, going back and forth. Is there any conclusive evidence to say either way, whether, you know, that's true or not? No, there's not. Um, You know, we, we just have our, our opinions, you know, but think about it this way depending on, you know, what you want to think, you know, it's one, it's bad enough um, 
to be a sex offender and, you know, to abduct and, and sexually assault and murder uh, kids. And then it's kind of at another plane to admit to necrophilia, which is um, what he admitted to. So if you look at it from that perspective, I don't know why he would make that part up. But again, I don't also really know why his mind works the way it works, period. That is a good point, because my gut reaction is, look at his history. Mm-hmm. Why would that? Why does he care? Like, I think he, he would want her alive. But when you put it that way, like, he's not exactly saving face by admitting to necrophilia. So, right. um, interesting. Yeah. The last case I wanted to discuss with you today is the murder of Janice Wright. And right away, you mentioned in the chapter that when Janice was reported missing to police by her sister after being gone for 24 hours, her father didn't really show much concern and assumed she was just off in the neighborhood somewhere. Is that type of initial reaction typical? Well, um, no. Uh, 24 hours is a long time. Yeah. For a six-year-old. For a six-year-old, yeah. As the search for Janice began, a pair of children's underwear was discovered and a photo of them was presented to her mother for identification. And this is unimaginable to me, completely heart wrenching. What is that like on the police side of things? What kind of training or coaching do people have for that type of interaction? At that time, I mean, honestly, none. Um, You know, I think that today, there's a lot more emphasis on being, you know, trauma-informed training and trauma-informed interviewing and and that kind of thing. Um, I will say that there was a victim specialist from the FBI that was involved in the case from the get-go. So that was, you know, that was a good thing, but I don't remember if she was present uh, at the time that 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 photograph was shown to um, Denise's mother or not. But, you know, the detectives that worked with her were experienced uh, detectives. Uh, one of them was a, a sex crimes detective. So she had, you know, plenty of experience talking with people about very difficult, sensitive subjects. But, you know, this is, it's hard to prepare for something like that. It's yeah. outside the realm of, of certainly, I, I don't want to say the ordinary, but even for police work, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of outside the scope. Yeah. I can only imagine you, you kick off this search assuming you're going to hopefully find someone just, you know, hiding or ran away. And then to find that kind of clue so early on just must have been brutal for everyone involved. But as a mom, like, Mm -hmm. that's hard. Yeah. I mean, you know, with, with, uh, with Janice, once those were found, it was pretty clear something bad had happened to her, but what, right. You're like, Mm -hmm. is she still alive? You know, is she being held somewhere? So, you know, the, um, the search for her and, and, um, the level of dedication by all of the investigators and searchers and everybody that was involved, um, you know, was pretty amazing. And, you know, there were people there that were self, you know, self-deploying from other agencies and agencies calling up to volunteer their people to help. And, you know, when something like that happens, it is so unusual for something like that to happen. And then also, so again, again, like so terrifying, how can this be? it's kind of an all hands on deck for everybody, you know, not just the police, but, you know, really the whole community. Neighbors, family. Yeah. Everyone. 
Now, it makes sense, particularly in this case, due to the delay of reporting a six-year-old as missing, that the parents would be looked at first. What eliminated them as suspects? Was it getting DNA results or was there something that happened sooner that cleared them? Uh, the DNA, 100%. You know, um, once it was determined that there was, uh, you know, biological evidence on the underwear that didn't match her dad, it was pretty clear that, we, you know, there was an unknown suspect involved in the case. So and that that happened fairly quickly. Yeah, I was amazed. You said it was like a day, a day and a half or something when usually it takes months. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the crime lab was basically working around the clock on that case, because once we had the DNA, then it became a matter of testing all the people that lived in the trailer um, park and getting DNA samples from them and getting them to the lab. And uh, the, the crime lab was literally working 24-7 processing all these reference samples. It was, it was pretty unbelievable because, as you know, that doesn't normally happen. Um, you know, there were a lot of very um, extraordinary things that happened because, again, time was of the essence. We're, you know, the, the clock is ticking trying to find this girl and um, and trying to find, you know, who took her. So that I believe in this case, the, um, you know, thank goodness the state patrol was willing to put in the time and kind of, you know, put their regular cases to the side to uh, get all these tested. Yeah. So you go on to talk about the discovery of her body and the canvas that went on in the neighborhood and that everyone was really helpful in general with, you know, giving their DNA, searching for her. And we learned that there's a 17-year-old neighbor, Gabriel Gaeta, who was displaying concerning behavior. His, I don't know if his mother maybe mentioned that to investigators, but how did we initially get him linked? Was it only through the mom saying that and investigators talking to him, or was it actually after DNA was collected? So he was one of the residents that lived within the, um, the neighborhood, and he was asked, just like everybody else, for a DNA sample and he initially um, declined. Okay. And if I recall correctly, I think his parents might've declined for him initially saying that he was you know, very upset and he was taking it really hard and um, that he was curled up in the fetal position in his room. And it, it was just weird, you know, uh, for, for a 17 year old to be that broken up about this. Um, so that was a red flag. And the fact that he, you know, basically they didn't get his, his DNA on the canvas. Mm -hmm. So that information was relayed back to the command post. And then it was decided somebody else is going to go back out there and attempt to get the DNA again. Um, which the second time they went out there, they did get the DNA from him. And, you know, with that, I think it was 24 hours later that. Oh, okay. So yeah, it was. It was pretty quick. That makes sense. Now, by the time it went to court years later, it was a very strong case. And I think everyone was not surprised really when he admitted guilt because it was so strong. Can you tell us what kind of evidence helped to build that case to be so strong outside of DNA? Was there other items found in his home? Um, you know, I was not part of the trial. And um, so I don't remember everything that was found, but I do recall that there was evidence found in his room. Um, so there was clothing that had either blood or mud or both. Mm. 
uh, found in his room that, you know, he had not washed or discarded. And um, so that was pretty critical evidence. And um, other than that, I, you know, and the circumstantial evidence, you know, he, he was known to the victim. He was a friend of, uh, I believe, the victim's older siblings. So, um, and of course, this is a small neighborhood as well. So um, it, it wouldn't be surprising that she might have gone with him mm-hmm. or, you know, agreed to, or either agreed to go with him or run into him um, in the wooded area adjacent to the neighborhood. So tell me the differences, if there are any, when a perpetrator is technically a child, how do you navigate that? How does that feel to you as a detective? I I mean, I've had several cases that involve juvenile perpetrators and, you know, it is sad that somebody would be involved in a violent crime that young in their lives. Um, You know, it does make you wonder like what led them to this point, what was going on in their lives um, that would make them behave this way. But um, Mm-hmm. You know, they're in a lot of cases, you know, juveniles are prosecuted as adults, um, you know, when they commit violent crimes, violent felony crimes. And so, um, yeah, I don't I don't remember what kind of a sentence uh, Gaeta received. He got 40 years um, and was tried as an adult. Um, but because he was a juvenile, they weren't going to give him life. He gets a parole. Uh, OK, so. And that's one question I have for you. I think a lot of people have an opinion about that. We talk a lot about on the show, um, like Canada does a great job of rehabilitating. Um, and we don't see that as much here in the U.S. So do you have an opinion on on being tried as an adult? I mean, 17 is close to an adult. So yeah, is it subjective? I think it depends on the kind of crime, you know. Yeah. But my experience with, um, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist when it comes to psychopathy or, um, you know, sexual violence, but, you know, based on my experience and what I've seen, um, it's pretty hard to rehabilitate someone who commits sexual violence. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, beating a six-year-old to death, you know, raping and killing a six-year-old. That's not accidental. That's not bad judgment. That's a different level. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you there. Well, Lindsay, you've had a very impressive career. You've made some major impacts on cold cases, victims, families, and even laws. And one of them that I think is so amazing was that you helped to get the state to pass a a bill called Jennifer and Michelle's Law. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what went into getting that law in place? So Jennifer and Michelle's Law was passed in 2019. And it took about four years of lobbying down in Olympia, um, trying to convince legislators to pass a bill, uh, basically to help strengthen our DNA laws in Washington, because we do have some loopholes in our in our laws, and we still do today. I think that Jennifer and Michelle's law is a great step in the right direction, but I still think we have work to do. And um, because there are various ways that people slip through the cracks and don't end up in the database to solve cases. And, um, you know, there's lots of different reasons for that and lots of different ways that people um, sort of slip through. But the point with Jennifer and Michelle's law was to, um, you know, try to close some of those gaps. And at the time that I first started lobbying and working with uh, Representative Tina Orwell on this um, legislation, 
the two cases were still unsolved. And so I really, really thought that, um, well, I knew DNA was going to be the key, right, to solving these two cases. But I really thought that um, maybe the perpetrators of Jennifer and Michelle's murders were in prison somewhere or died in prison, or maybe they were locked away in a mental hospital and never had their DNA collected. And I'd seen so many examples of that in other states that it really, you know, kind of lit a fire under me that, okay, we've got these, um, these people in, in Washington that have slipped through the cracks. And I have a whole chapter on the sex offender Island in my book. And I, you know, talk about a case that I helped to solve um, from that population of, of sexual predators that, you know, there were all these guys out there that never had their DNA collected. And yet, you know, they were in prison for decades and, and then they're locked away on the island for decades and basically just forgotten about. And, you know, how many cold cases may they be responsible for? And so that really got my wheels turning. And, and finally, in 2019, that bill was passed and it, it did quite a few different things. But the highlights were that it um, allows law enforcement to enter DNA from deceased offenders into CODIS, regardless of when they were convicted. And that's really key for cold cases because our DNA law, the first one didn't take effect until 1990. Um, but it's not like we didn't have people committing murders in the seventies and eighties and you know what I mean? Yeah. So we really needed to be able to capture and get DNA from convicted offenders into CODIS uh, that were operating in the seventies and eighties and even before. And so this law allows that to occur if law enforcement can obtain a sample and, you know, those samples can be obtained in a variety of ways, but that's, you know, one good thing that came out of it. And we also added um, a couple of new crimes to the bill. So indecent exposure it now requires a DNA sample to be provided if you're convicted of that gross misdemeanor. And, you know, I think sometimes people think of indecent exposure as, you know, not a very serious crime, but it's kind of, it can be kind of a gateway crime. And it can also be a crime that um, if you, you read the histories of a lot of serial rapists and, and sexually motivated serial killers, they engage in, in exposure, not only at the beginning of their career, but throughout. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they may be continuing to peep in windows and expose themselves to um, women or children or, you know, whoever their victims are throughout their offending lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can think of five cases off the top of my head where that was and they even saw it as a red flag, but they're like, oh, he's a good old boy. He'll grow out of it. And it's like, oh, really? Because he's a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like so I was really glad to see that got added. Um, there was a few other things that were added to the bill and you know, um, one thing that I hope that we can address in the future is tightening up the law, because there are a lot of people that get convicted of qualifying offenses that never go to prison. And those are the people that most often slip through the cracks and they never have their DNA collected because they walk right out of the courtroom after being sentenced and it never gets collected. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping at some point we can address that. Yeah, maybe collected at court. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would make sense. I imagine a lot of our listeners are going to look up to you now if they haven't already. Um, but what kind of advice do you have for women and girls who want to pursue a career in law enforcement, particularly as a detective? 
I say that the field needs you. Uh, women think differently. You know, we operate differently. We look at things from a different perspective. And I think we bring so much to the table when it comes to um, investigating any kind of crime, but especially violent crimes, because, uh, you know, not everybody can deal with family members and, and interact with victims in a positive way that doesn't further traumatize those people. Uh, not to say that there aren't men that can't do a great job at it, because they're certainly, you know, I've had partners that are fantastic. Uh, but I think women do bring something different. You know, we're we see things from a different through a different lens, I would say. Um, maybe, you know, we just evaluate things from kind of a different perspective. So I would say definitely go for it. <laughs> So before we wrap things up, why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast, Anatomy of a Cold Case? You know, so I'm not doing my podcast any longer. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So I did. I, I don't know how many episodes we did. And it was fun. But it, uh, you know this. It's a heck of a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I w wasn't getting paid for it. And so um, I do have another project in the works. Uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, that will be. Um, something that I can, you know, can kind of continue on. Uh, Ooh, I'm rubbing happens. my fingers together. Can't wait to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'll definitely let you know when that, when I have some concrete news to share on that, but yeah. Perfect. But anatomy of a cold case, I think, I think the episodes are still up on. They are. Yeah. They're, I think six, maybe six episodes are out. So definitely okay. go check them out if you are interested in hearing more. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure to meet you. Um, and I hope you'll consider joining again. I have a feeling I'm going to cover quite a few cases that you had a hand in. So let me know if you want to maybe join forces. Yeah, absolutely. Not a problem. Thanks again to Lindsay Wade, who helped to shed light on so many of my questions. She's really someone I would call a hashtag boss bitch. Talk about a career. She entered an industry where women are the minority and made a name for herself at such a young age, getting promoted over older white men. I can't wait to see what's next for her, and I hope we get the chance to have her on the show again soon. Be sure to get a copy of her book, In My DNA, which is linked in our show notes and in our blog. And when you read it, make sure to review it online. Lindsay told me that the best way to help her is with reviews on Goodreads and Amazon. And I promise you'll love it. So give her that review. Does my voice sound weird? I feel like I was screaming in my sleep oh, or something. <laughs> like what? Is that something that happens <clears throat> often for you? No, but oh, it does okay. feel like I was maybe, I mean, I haven't really been talking for two days. Oh. So maybe it's just like lack of use. <laughs> it was another dream of Henry Cavill. <laughs> what can I say? I believe it. I just watched Mission Impossible 6, the one oh, that he's Oh, I need in. to watch that. I haven't watched it. Oh, you're in trouble when you watch that. <laughs> I know. He looks hot oh, in the fight oh, scene. Oh, my goodness. His mustache. Other city is... Other, <laughs> news of her disappearance swept through the... Mamma mia. Burt Baccarat. <laughs> Whoever that is. I never really Rips. knew. <laughs> I never really knew. I just know the name. He was one of the greatest uh, music composers of the 20th century. I say a little prayer. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I know who that is. 
Say little, little prayer for you. Yeah. I love the opening uh, to my rain, best friend's wedding. Raindrops yes. keep falling on my head. Yes. Oh, okay. You saw Austin Powers. Yeah, Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Burt Baccarat. Oh, okay. Yeah. That he was be, very groovy. That All might be where I know him sounded, from. Yeah. I always wonder how many takes big actors like that take. Like, yeah. do they mess up or no? Probably. Definitely. I remember Dick Clark's bloopers of the 90s. I have a question. Oh, fuck. What was my you question? don't have to say I have a question. Just I'm <laughs> sorry. Do you know, did your dad uh, get the balloons I sent him? Oh, my God. For his birthday? For Father's Day. <laughs> you didn't really, though, right? I wish. I thought about it because this morning. that would and was be like... amazing. Because unfortunately, he's going on a business trip at like 1 p.m. So that's oh. why I can't see him today. Mm-hmm. A Father's Day business trip <laughs> to the balloon factory. <laughs> yeah, he has some work at the balloon factory. <laughs> <laughs> going to go to Fred Meyer and let's look around in the florist area. Oh, my God. Get Harney. He's coming to our live show, and I plan to try to make a joke. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Josh is going to die. Oh so God. is my great grand, my grandpa, Chloe's great grandpa. Oh, so. I'll get him a balloon, too. <laughs> it he comes like, from somewhere. And he loves the music cards, and it's just so funny That's to see cute. someone age like that. You know, that is, sentimentality hits you. Is he German? Uh, no, he's very, very British. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, he's from well, southern, southern England. All right. And not Maybe. being emotional. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Genetic genealogy played a crucial role. Oh, Emily fucking around. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we're introducing you at the show, actually. Former Tacoma residents. <laughs> close to done here. <laughs> That kind of does the editing for it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Hello? What? Nothing. What? Liar. I'm laughing at a... I, I googled sexy balloon for your dad. Oh, my God. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>